World's Dullest Editorial Launches Panic In an inane sequel to the Harper's Letter fiasco, a New York Times editorial ignites a fury, proving its anodyne thesis. The New York Times ran a tepid house editorial in favor of free speech last week. A sober reaction. Tom Watson, Twitter. Arguably the worst day in the history of the New York Times. One might think running botched WMD reports that got us into the Iraq War, or getting a Pulitzer for lauding Stalin's liquidation of 5 million kulaks, might have constituted worse days. Who knew? Pundits, academics, and politicians across the cultural mainstream seem to agree with Watson, plunging into a days-long freakout over a meh editorial that shows little sign of abating. Appalling, barked J. School professor Jeff Jarvis. By the time the Times finally realizes what side it's on, it may be too late, screeched Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Will Bunch. The board should retract and resign, said journalist and former Planet Money of NPR fame founder Adam Davidson. Toxic, brain-deadening, both-sideism, railed Dan Frumkin of Press Watch, who went on to demand a retraction and a mass resignation. The aforementioned Watson agreed saying the NYT should retract this insanity and replace the entire editorial board. Not terribly relevant, but amusing still, was the reaction of actor George Takei, who said, It's like Bill Maher is now on the New York Times editorial board. The main objection of most of the pilers on involved the lead of the Times piece, which really was a maladroit piece of writing. For all the tolerance and enlightenment that modern society claims, Americans are losing hold of a fundamental right as citizens of a free country, the right to speak their minds and voice their opinions in public without fear of being shamed or shunned. There's obviously no legal right in America to voice an opinion without being criticized, so this line is indeed an error and an embarrassing one for a labored-over first line of a major New York Times editorial. On the other hand, a lot of great liberal thinkers decried shaming tactics as utterly opposite to the spirit of free speech with John Stuart Mill's warning of a social tyranny more formidable than many kinds of political oppression, being just one example. So, while the Times technically screwed up, cheering shaming and shunning as normal and healthy elements of life in free societies is a pretty weird gotcha. In any case, this bollocks lead introduced a piece that had been in the works for a while, and came complete with a poll the paper commissioned in conjunction with Siena College. Its premise tied to the uncontroversial observation that America has become dangerously polarized, is that the political left and right are caught in a destructive loop of condemnation and recrimination. Citing a poll that 84% of Americans, including 84% of black Americans, who said it was either a very serious or somewhat serious problem that people are now afraid to voice opinions out of fear of retaliation or harsh criticism, the Times said, when speech is stifled or when dissenters are shut out, that a society also loses its ability to resolve conflict and faces the risk of political violence. The Times piece is pretty transparently a marketing ploy, designed to regain a foothold with the slew of demographics lost to the paper in recent years. It's a campaign that deserves to fail if it somehow doesn't. The internal Times debate over whether or not to broaden its ideological horizons has for years run along humorously obnoxious lines, like, Should we hire one never-Trump Republican columnist or none? Even this latest offering, wringing hands about America's lack of ideological tolerance, doesn't wonder at the paper's own near-total absence of columnists and reporters positively disposed or even just indifferent 
to Bernie Sanders, or really any political viewpoint outside the two dominant theologies. Still, the Times was careful, conspicuously, agonizingly, excessively careful, to point out that the speech issue was not exclusive to one political side or another. They wrote that Republicans, for all their braying about cancel culture, have embraced an even more extreme version of censoriousness in the form of official bans on certain books or classroom ideas. Their approach here was similar to the now infamous open letter in support of free speech and Harper's from two summers ago, in which a handful of academics, authors, artists, and journalists, including Noam Chomsky, Salman Rushdie, J.K. Rowling, Winton Marsalis, and others decried a new set of moral attitudes and political commitments that tend to weaken our norms of open debate and toleration of differences in favor of ideological conformity. In an effort to head off blowback, the Harper's Letter authors went to absurd lengths to create the most inoffensive conceivable statement in support of free expression, to the point where more than a dozen mainstream outlets, ranging from the Daily Beast to the Washington Post to the New Yorker and beyond, as well as at least one of the signatories, used the term anodyne to describe it. We went through dozens and dozens of drafts with a lot of input from various signatories to strike as nuanced a balance as possible says Thomas Chatterton Williams, one of the authors of the Harper's Letter. This was done, he said, to make it clear that it wasn't a one-sided attack on the left, but an attempt to call attention to a problem that transcends the political binary. The caution not only didn't help, but made things worse. The letter stimulated a host of bizarre controversies, including complaints from Vox staffers that kind of sort of led to the exit of signatory co-founder Matt Iglesias, whose crime was co-appearing on the Harper's Letter with people whose views on trans issues were deemed objectionable. Several signatories withdrew when they found out who else was signing, seeming to defeat the purpose of making a statement in favor of tolerating differing views, as signatories like Malcolm Gladwell pointed out. There were so many freakouts in the letter's wake that Guardian columnist Jonathan Friedland commented it might be a rare example of the reaction to a text, making the text's case rather better than the text itself. This Times editorial is watered down almost to the level of a public service announcement written for the Cartoon Network, or maybe a fortune cookie. Free speech is a process, not a destination. Winning numbers, 4, 9, 11, 32, 46. It made the Harper's letter read like a bin Laden fatwa, but it's somehow arousing a bigger panic. Its critics view the mention of Republican legislative bans in conjunction with canceling as a monstrous affront, a felony case of both sideism. Obviously, any implication that there's any moral comparison between Republicans banning speech by law and Democrats doing it by way of informal backroom deals with unaccountable tech monopolies is unacceptable. Beyond that now, much of the commentariat seems to believe the op-ed page has outlived its usefulness unless it's engaged in fulsome denunciation of correct targets. We need more shaming and shunning, not less, is how Froome can put it putting the names of opinion editor Kathleen Kingsbury and deputy opinion editor Patrick Healy up near the top of his piece for the record, in case anyone wanted to know who needs teeing up for the next fire a random person campaign. It would be ironic if Kingsbury were forced out for running a lukewarm editorial in support of free speech, since she replaced the last time's opinion editor beheaded in the wake of a social media and staff meltdown, James Bennett. The latter's offense two years ago was running an editorial by Republican Senator Tom Cotton that called for invoking the Insurrection Act to deploy troops during the George Floyd protests. 
When I asked Frumkin if the idea was to keep cycling through Times Opinion Editors until you get one who's appropriately focused in the direction you like, he replied, Yes, I would like them replaced with people who stake out bold, defensible, not brainless positions while publishing a very wide range of perspectives from others. He then linked to an essay of his arguing that publishing wide perspectives would essentially entail coding any articles with which the bold op-ed board disagreed all over with warnings, pointing out where they're wrong, arguing in bad faith, or are morally abhorrent. This incidentally is how the cotton piece looks online now, a 970-word op-ed preceded by a 300-word editor's note explaining why it sucks and shouldn't have been published. This is the same terror of uncontextualized thought that spurred everything from the campaigns to place more controls on Joe Rogan to the mountains of flags and warning labels platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube pile on all kinds of content now. Are you sure you want to read this debunked wrong thinker? Click yes, no. To the bizarre new fact-checking movement that takes factually true statements and objects to them at length for missing context. The underlying premise of all these formats is the conviction that the ordinary schlub media consumer will make the wrong decision if the correct message isn't hammered out everywhere for him or her in all caps by mental superiors. This idea isn't just insulting, but usually incorrect. Like thinking Lord Ha Ha broadcasts would make English soldiers bayonet each other rather than laugh or fight harder. Even just on the level of commercial self-preservation, one would think media people would eventually realize there's a limit to how many times you can tell people they're too dumb to be trusted with controversial ideas and still keep any audience, but they never do. There may be plenty of reasons to roll eyes at the Times piece, but the poll numbers in there speak to this exhaustion with what Chatterton Williams calls the consensus enforcers who feverishly insist there's no problem and the fact that you disagree is evidence that you should resign your position. It was crazy enough when jobs were lost over the Harper's letter, but calling for firings over this, an editorial that drives two miles an hour down the middle of the middle of the middle of the road, if this is anybody's idea of a taboo, we really have lost it. Thanks for listening to the audio version of this article. For more, visit taibi.substack.com.